This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian Archive Long Read. Hi, my name is Rory Cohen. I'm a writer and filmmaker based in Tel Aviv. I'm the author of In Our Teens, We Dreamed of Making Peace Between Israelis and Palestinians. Then my friend was shot, which was published in January 2022. I wrote this piece in 2021. It came out in 2022 because I had just returned to Israel in 2019, I think. What you see in the piece is a lot of my coming to terms with what I knew this place could be as a teenager who went to Seeds of Peace and that relationships with people that I love to this day and some of whom I'm lucky enough to call friends to this day. The first couple of years after you return home, I think it's it's such a weird time to be abroad somewhere. And I lived in a couple of different places and then returning home and seeing the reality of it. And I think the first couple of years, what was obvious to me is the racism in Israel and the inherent violence in Israeli society that makes people be on edge and the outright denial of the occupation, or at least what I thought was the outright denial of the occupation in Israeli society. I think since then, I've realized that Israel is not in denial about the occupation. It knows about it, but it just really doesn't want to deal with it. That's not exactly the same thing. And I think that piece was, originally I'd actually written it as a letter to a seal. And I think that if I ever make the documentary that I intended to make, it would be a letter to a seal, an audiovisual letter, because so much of what I want to say and so much of what I think has to do with who we were as teenagers and what we experienced back then. That's really still seeds of peace and camp and what was possible at camp and what was possible for teenagers who went to that camp, especially the Israelis and Palestinians. All of those things are something that I can still feel and something that speak to me and who I am, my personality, that kind of optimism and that kind of dreamscape. And I think a seal really embodied it. So I think that piece really was first and foremost coming to terms with what the society is. And obviously now with everything that's happening in the Middle East, I don't even know what this will be. What I'm experiencing right now, first of all, is a lot of frustration with the region and 
a lot of grief with the violence here, fundamentalist forces that control Gaza and control Israel. The Israeli government right now is fully fundamentalist, Jewish, extreme far right. I think for the listeners, with everything I'm seeing on social media, how people voice almost enthusiasm at people's death, there's something about the media that we consume that dehumanizes us. And what I'm proud of in this piece is that it's hopefully managed to humanize a conflict that otherwise is globally polarizing, as we're seeing right now. And I hope that listeners are able to think and process the fact that these are people who live on the ground and a lot of Israelis don't want Gaza harmed. They're just not the ones that the media covers and they're not the ones that the, that social media reshares. And a lot of Palestinians are appalled by what Hamas did. But again, they're not the ones that are going to be featured in, in stories often. And it, it's really hard for anyone who's in peace building or ending the occupation on the Israeli side to to break through with their own voice. And I was lucky enough to be offered that opportunity by the long read team at The Guardian. And I hope that if this story has met you and you've made time to listen, you realize that there's just so many people here who live here, maybe even a majority of people who live here who don't want another person to be harmed regardless of their religion or ethnicity. They're scared. A lot of people are scared. A lot of people can say things when they're scared. But if you live somewhere else and you want to support people who live in Israel and Palestine, by all means, fight against the occupation. But don't be for ending Israeli lives or, or Palestinian lives. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. In our teens, we dreamed of making peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Then my friend was shot. Written and read by Roy Cohen and produced by Hattie Moya. On the 11th May 2021, I was sitting with a small group in a cafe in southern Tel Aviv studying Arabic. Our teacher, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, had been telling us that he and his pregnant Jewish wife kept getting turned down by landlords who would not rent their property to a mixed couple. We were almost at the end of the three-hour class when air raid sirens sounded. A few days earlier, missiles had been launched from Gaza into Israel but this was the first time they had hit Tel Aviv. Beyond the fear of an airstrike, I had a sad, heavy feeling. I had recently returned to live in Israel after 15 years studying and working abroad. I remembered a time in the mid-1990s when I had believed that Israel was going to be different, more just and less violent. That belief now felt like a distant memory. My faith in Israel's future had been inspired by an experience that I shared as a teenager with a group of extraordinary people. As we waited for the rocket fire to stop, I recalled one of those people in vivid detail. 
a person I have barely been able to talk about in my home country for more than 20 years. His name was Asil Asle. When I first met Asil in 1997, he was 14, a Palestinian citizen of Israel from Arabe in the Galilee, and I was 13, a Jew from the Mediterranean city of Ashdod, formerly the Palestinian village Isdod. We had been chosen as Israeli delegates to a summer camp in the U.S. for teenagers from conflict areas. A few months before camp, we both attended a preparatory seminar for the Israeli delegation. We didn't become friends straight away. I was skinny, wore denim overalls, and mostly hung out with girls. Asil was slightly taller than me, physically bigger, and already had facial hair. I felt uncomfortable around boys. Not sure if they were going to comment on the way I spoke, which at the time I thought was too feminine. But I warmed to Asil. His presence was engaging. He had a habit of tilting his head slightly to the side, his cheeks rising as he smiled. In conversation, he lowered his voice and narrowed his eyes, demanding attention. Our delegation to the summer camp, which was called Seeds of Peace, had been selected by the Israeli Ministry of Education, which was looking for people with leadership skills and good English. While knowledge of a foreign language is often a product of privilege, neither Asil nor I came from wealthy families. My father was a taxi driver, and my mother worked for the Port Authority. Asil's father owned a small business, and his mother was an educational counselor. Our knack for languages and the gift of curiosity made us good candidates. Seeds of Peace was founded by two Americans, John Wallach and Bobby Gotchak, in 1993, the year that the Oslo Peace Accords were signed between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. The purpose of Seeds of Peace was to create bonds between young members of communities in conflict and lay the groundwork for future understanding. Located in a rural part of Maine, The summer camp offered traditional activities like sports, art projects, and talent shows. It also facilitated group dialogue sessions, in which campers from the different delegations talked about their hopes, fears, and traumas with kids from enemy countries. The year Asil and I attended camp for the first time, 1997, there were 120 campers from Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco, and Qatar. as well as the U.S. The camp was funded through a mix of corporate partnerships, individual donations, and federal grants. It was the 90s. The Cold War was officially over, and the United States was the global leader, presenting itself to the Middle East as a hopeful messenger. We were young, and we ate it up. To be put on a plane to go to a summer camp? What could be more exciting? When we arrived, The counselors hugged us as we got off the bus. Camp felt safe, warm, and welcoming. The closely packed bunk beds put us within arm's reach of each other, and meeting rooms nested in the pines invited us to engage in conversation. Even the lake was called pleasant. But conflict emerged on day two, when each of the delegations stood in front of their flag and sang their national anthem. Asil and a fellow Palestinian citizen of Israel refused to sing the Israeli anthem. 
As a seal told a friend, he could not relate to an anthem that started with a sentence, As long as in the heart within the Jewish soul yearns, our hope is not yet lost. I was astonished by a seal's boldness. Being queer, I was always trying not to call attention to the ways in which I was different. And here was this kid from my delegation, only a year older than me, who acted the way he felt, who set himself aside from the pack. Not without jealousy, I began to admire him. Not everything a seal did was iconoclastic. He also had a fun-loving, silly side. In our first summer together, he co-wrote a song whose chorus was No food, no food, no food, no food, no food I ate waiting at the dining hall. Asil sang these lyrics with his co-writers at the camp's talent show, exuding confidence. There was something about camp that made our young group shine. Being at Seeds of Peace felt like being part of history. Wallach told us every day, that we were the future leaders of our peoples. I think Asil and I shared the intoxicating excitement of seeing ourselves as agents of change. In fact, Asil was already affecting change. His unwillingness to sing the Israeli anthem was only the first in a series of actions that defied the Israeli delegation leader's expectations. Every group included three to five government officials who accompanied the kids. The officials made sure the students were well-schooled in the official version of historic events. Israeli delegation leaders had party-line answers about the 1948 war, Palestinian refugees, settlements. But Asil knew Palestinian history and insisted on telling it. After our first summer at camp, a Ministry of Education official told Seeds of Peace that Asil would not be permitted to return to camp with the Israeli delegation. So Seeds of Peace invited him in 1998 to participate as his own delegation. Asil Asli, a delegation of one. As a Jew whose family came from Algeria and Morocco, I had some idea of how hard it was to have an Arab identity in Israeli society. My grandmother, Khajila, went by her French name, Alice, while my father, Angel Machluf, went by the Jewish name, Mordechai. It was easier that way. But Asil showed me, and the entire Israeli delegation, that it was possible to stand up for your identity. That year, I got a glimpse of the connections that were possible between Palestinians and Israelis. Our relationships would always be complicated, but we had discovered we had a lot in common, and we had a lot to say. When tragedy hit those friendships, there was no way to talk about it. For long years of my life, the animated and hopeful interactions of those teenage years were overtaken by silence. In the next few years, Asil and I returned to camp every summer. We became members of a group of young leaders in the organization. There was Tarek from the Jordanian delegation whose family were Palestinian refugees. Asil and I both looked up to Tarek, who was a couple of years older than us, and already very worldly. There was Aliyah from the Palestinian delegation, an instant friend, who I could joke around with for hours. When the summer of 1997 ended, we returned to the Middle East. 
A triple suicide bombing in Jerusalem's Ben Yehuda promenade had just killed four people. Israel was tense. Under the Oslo peace accords, Israel had withdrawn from Jericho, Gaza, and most of Hebron. To some Israelis, these withdrawals were a betrayal of the country's security interests. To others, they were a betrayal of a biblical pact with God. Religious and right-wing ideologues held mass protests against the Oslo Accords. Labor Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who had signed the Oslo Accords, responded to the civil unrest and violence by severely limiting Palestinian movement from the West Bank and Gaza into Israel. This policy of restricting movement, which unfolded during the 90s, introduced new layers of permits and physical barriers. As children of the 80s, my generation of Israelis and Palestinians had been born into mostly segregated towns. The 90s made interaction between our communities even harder. To live in a Jewish town and have newly acquired Palestinian friends was highly unusual. Returning home was especially challenging for one 15-year-old Palestinian girl from our 1997 Israeli delegation, who sent the Seeds of Peace magazine a letter entitled Caught Between Worlds, in which she wrote, As a Palestinian living in Israel, I find it interesting, but also difficult, to have these two different sides to myself. Can these two worlds live together? Am I strange? Asil, also a Palestinian citizen of Israel, responded with an open letter of his own. I don't agree that you are caught. We don't have to be caught. We can lead these two worlds. Even in the confusing home environments we returned to, Asil was ready to show us the way. Even though I admired his courage, I was sometimes taken aback by what Asil dared to say or do in public. In 1999, Seeds of Peace opened a center in Jerusalem, and Asil was asked to act as MC. In front of hundreds of people, Asil performed a skit in which he realized that he wasn't wearing Seeds of Peace's signature green shirt and removed his clothes only to reveal the green shirt and a pair of shorts underneath. Asil was six feet tall and athletic, his hairline already receding. He looked more like a man than a kid, but he was unafraid to make a fool of himself. I was cringing in the audience, embarrassed by what was, in retrospect, a hilarious performance. Seeds of Peace now had a place in Jerusalem, the center for coexistence, where Palestinians and Israelis could freely meet, and Asil was the star of its opening night. Seeds of Peace's regional staff organized activities outside Jerusalem. In order for the teenagers to get around, the American staff hired a driver, Samuel Junti, a Jerusalem native who was fluent in the city's languages, culture, people, and roads. A few weeks after my group returned from camp in 1997, Sammy picked us up in a Ford Transit and took us across checkpoints and borders. Every month after that, the young camp alumni would come up with a plan or an activity, and Sami took us there. Whether it was in Nahariya by the Lebanese border, or in the West Bank's Bet Sakhul. The American organization had connections that navigated government and military bureaucracies, and Sami knew how to safely get us to our new friends. 
driving in Sami's transit, boundaries between Jewish and Arab spaces shrank. Back then, I assumed that these boundaries would further diminish over time and eventually disappear. One weekend, when it was still possible for us to cross these borders, Sami and other staff brought friends to my house in Ashdod, including Tariq and others from Jordan. Asil came down from the Galilee. The Jordanian guests and Asil stayed the night. Asil and I were the hosts in this country, so we gave the Jordanians the bedrooms. We shared my mother's white couch. It was a long, deep couch. We could both fit if we lay head to toe. We fell asleep in front of the TV. At one point in the middle of the night, I woke up to the smell of a seal's feet. I got annoyed and told myself that I would mention it in the morning. When morning came, a seal donned the signature smile he had when he was about to say something controversial and told me that the smell of my feet had woken him up. We laughed and then we talked about South Park. Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. The decade that had started with peace treaties was spinning out of control. In 1995, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had been murdered by a right-wing activist who wanted to disrupt the peace process. Seven years after the Oslo agreements, Labour's new Prime Minister, Ehud Barak, decided that if he could not get a peace agreement signed within a year in office, no one could. His statement in July 2000 that there was no partner on the Palestinian side reaffirmed what anti-compromise activists in Israel had been saying all along. Jews must not trust Palestinians. A few months later, the right's political veteran Ariel Sharon visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem, which is also the holy grounds of the Jewish Temple Mount. Sharon knew that his presence there would stir Muslim leaders to calls to protect Jerusalem. His advisors later said in a documentary that they wanted to antagonize Palestinians and get media coverage in the run-up to the election. On the 28th of September 2000, the day of Sharon's hour-long visit, scores of Palestinian protesters took to the streets and several threw stones at the politicians' entourage. Within 48 hours, Palestinian protests escalated into road blockades, arson, and sporadic attacks on Jews. They were met with force by police. High-ranking officers called for the use of rubber bullets live ammunition, and snipers. This was an unprecedented escalation in use of force against citizens. One Palestinian protester was filmed by a news crew telling a military sniper, Why are you shooting us? These are not the occupied territories. We are citizens. His words reflected the shock of a people who saw their country's security forces use live weapons against them. On the 1st of October 2000, three Palestinian citizens between the ages of 18 and 23 were shot dead. The following day, 
there was a rally outside a seal's hometown, Arabe, in the Galilee. A seal, who was 17 at the time, walked towards the protesters in his green Seeds of Peace shirt. His father, who was already there, said that a seal stood at a distance from the crowd. He wasn't carrying any kind of weapon. Suddenly, a police jeep sped onto the scene. Four policemen jumped out. It was a common tactic at the time for police to make an example out of one protester in order to scare away the rest. Some of the policemen later testified that the fact a seal was standing by himself made him look suspicious. I would guess that it also made him an easy target. The policemen ran towards a seal. When he tried to run, they chased him, and one of them hit him in the back with his gun. Then they shot a seal in the neck. He fell face down. As he lay bleeding, the police walked away. When his cousin rushed to his side, he heard a seal say, They killed me. I was at home, standing next to the couch that a seal and I had slept on, when Ned Lazarus, Seeds of Peace's regional director, called. A seal is dead, he said. What? I said. No, you're wrong. I heard only muffled echoes of Ned's words. The 17-year-old who defied authority, who wanted to lead both sides, who took his clothes off in front of hundreds of people to get a laugh, who was my friend, gone. Thirteen Palestinian men were killed by police in October 2000. Twelve of them were Israeli citizens, and one was a man from Gaza who came to Israel to work. There was one Jewish-Israeli victim who was killed as he was driving under a bridge and Palestinian protesters threw a rock on his car. These events marked the beginning of the Second Intifada, a violent period that lasted four and a half years and took the lives of roughly 3,000 Palestinians and 1,000 Israelis. To many in Israeli society, the events of October 2000 revealed that peace accords were an illusion. Palestinians had never wanted Jews around. The security offered by the state seemed fragile. Gun stores reported a spike in sales. On the 7th of October, an Israeli soldier from Tiberias was one of three kidnapped by the Lebanese organization Hezbollah. Jewish people in his hometown took to the streets, vandalized Arab-owned businesses, and set fire to a mosque. In my Jewish high school, I felt like no one wanted to hear about the death of my Palestinian friend. Even people who loved me found it hard to talk about Asil. I wanted so desperately to bring Asil into the conversation that one time when I was 17, I brought a newspaper with his photo in it to a pub and waited for someone to ask about it. One friend did. We had a short conversation that faded away quickly. The fact that Asil was a Palestinian killed by a police officer made the act of talking openly about his death political. During those times, a conversation about Asil's loss and my grief felt taboo. At dinner with my family, I brought up what happened to Asil. My brother-in-law, who I love, asked, 
What makes you think he was shot for no reason? My brother-in-law's family, like my mother's, came from Algeria, which Jews fled during the Algerian War of Independence in the middle of the 20th century. Our parents came to Israel because of its promise to be a safe haven for Jews, to acknowledge that a Palestinian had been illegally killed by a cop meant that the state was an unjust aggressor. It meant that we, my brother-in-law and I, our Jewish community in Israel, might not have right on our side. But Asil was my friend, and my confusion quickly turned to anger. I banged my fist on the table and yelled at my brother-in-law for making assumptions about someone he had never met. I didn't back down in the moment, but... After that evening, I would talk about Asil only around people with whom it felt safe to do so. I became more reserved, more careful. While I was struggling to talk about the events of October 2000 in Jewish spaces, the victims' families were protesting their son's death. Asil's father reenacted for the TV news cameras how his son had been chased and shot in a scene that I have re-watched on YouTube dozens of times. When I first watched this video, I imagined what it was like for Asil in his final moments, how afraid he must have been. The older I got, the more I thought about what it was like for Asil's father to witness his son's death to go through the motions for the cameras. Israeli media got the message. Here was an innocent victim, but it was a distorted one. It made out that Asil, the peace activist, was the only innocent victim. Eventually, Prime Minister Barak appointed an official inquiry, the Orr Commission, to investigate the events surrounding the violence of October 2000. During the hearings, discrepancies emerged between the police testifying in Asil's case. When commission members challenged one of the policemen who chased Asil, he said, The fact that our testimonies don't match only proves that we didn't coordinate our stories. This cynical argument, as if contradictory testimonies were a sign of credibility, didn't surprise me. I heard this cynicism every time I tried to bring up a seal. Oh, it's a shame he died, but you don't know what really happened. More and more, when the topic of October 2000 came up, I planned what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. I imagined people saying to me, Did you really know him as well as you think? I thought about who would hear me and who would find out what I had said. I surrendered to the fear of what other people might say and shut myself behind a wall of silence. In 2001, while the Orr Commission was in progress, I graduated from high school and was drafted into the military. After Asil's death, I could no longer believe in the wisdom and leadership of our generals, but still, I could not imagine evading military service. It has been a deep part of Israeli culture my entire life, and the Second Intifada did not seem like a time to withdraw from service. In March 2002 alone, 135 Israelis were killed by suicide bombers. 
I joined the Navy. And like most Jewish men, I served for three years while my female friends served too. Many Palestinians found it offensive that their Israeli friends joined the military at all. Soldiers can be tasked with carrying out state violence against Palestinians at checkpoints and in their own homes. Many friendships and connections disintegrated. The years of crossing borders in Samuel Jundi's van were long gone. Most of the American staff who had run the Jerusalem Seeds of Peace office, young professionals in their 20s and early 30s, left in the following years. The organization talked about canceling the activities that brought Palestinians and Israelis together. Sami, who had started as a driver and was now a staff member, was heartbroken. Before joining Seeds of Peace, he had been a prisoner in an Israeli jail 30 minutes away from my home. In the 2011 memoir he co-wrote with Jen Marlowe, The Hour of Sunlight, Sami mentioned that at the age of 18, he and two of his friends assembled a bomb they intended to use against Israelis. The bomb blew up in Sami's house and killed one of his friends. Sami was sent to prison for 10 years and got out in his late 20s. He dreamed of a different life for us. When Seeds of Peace considered closing the Jerusalem Center, Sami asked himself, how would separating our community of peacemakers lead to achieving peace? It was a rhetorical question, to which he knew the answer. Eventually, Seeds of Peace shut down the center whose opening a seal hosted months before he was shot. The center for coexistence was no more. That same day, Seeds of Peace let Sami go. Even as Seeds of Peace changed, the relationships formed there continued to offer me insight into how people outside Israel experienced the events of October 2000. Tarek, our friend from camp who grew up in Jordan, was at boarding school in Europe when he found out Asil had been killed. I saw him at a Seeds of Peace alumni event in 2005, but I could not get myself to bring up Asil. This was a different type of silence. We were Asil's friends, but I was Israeli, and Tarek was Palestinian-Jordanian. I did not know if he wanted to talk about Asil with me. I did not dare ask. One of my other friends from camp, Aliyah, lived in the occupied West Bank. Israel's changing policies made travel nearly impossible for her. After the second intifada, she had asked me to meet her in Jerusalem, wearing my soldier's uniform. I knew it would make us both sad, but Aliyah was thoughtful about everything she did. I showed up in my khaki naval uniform, like she asked. It was early winter. The streets of the French Hill neighborhood were filled with stark mountain light. Aliyah and I were talking about relatively normal stuff, what she was planning to do after university, what I was planning to do after the military. We approached a building that used to be the Seeds of Peace Center. The site was now a painful reminder of the past, before the Intifada, before they shut down the center, before a seal was killed. The Ore Commission released its conclusions in 2003. 
the commission recommended disciplinary action against several high-ranking politicians and police officers for using live ammunition. However, the policemen who shot the victims fell under the jurisdiction of the Department of Internal Police Investigations. The police's own investigation into October 2000 killings was less than rigorous. Eventually, in 2006, the head of the police's internal investigations unit and the attorney general announced that none of the policemen involved in the October 2000 killings would be tried. For years, I knew that people around me didn't want to know what happened to Asil. Now I knew that the justice system didn't either. I left Israel in my 20s. Asil's death and the Intifada were devastating. I had experienced through Seeds of Peace how big the world was, and I wanted to be part of it. But even as a neuroscience undergraduate in the U.S., I could not leave behind my roots. My topic of study was the effects of dialogue on Palestinians and Israelis. I dedicated my final thesis to Asil. After school, I became a documentary filmmaker and began making films about technology in London, Hong Kong, and New York. I made a feature film about an American technologist who was fed up with humans and tried to build the first truly intelligent AI. When Machine of Human Dreams came out in 2016, I thought about Asil, who, like me, spent hours of his youth in front of computers, exploring the internet. Had Asil been alive, I wondered, would he have watched my film? Would he have liked it? Would we have still been friends? In 2019, I moved back to Israel. Now I am 37 and living in Tel Aviv. A few months ago, I attended a protest rally against evictions of Palestinian families from Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. We were standing in a drum circle with children dancing in the middle, not exactly a violent mob. Suddenly, policemen in riot gear with guns appeared and walked through our group, staring with hostile expressions as they passed close to us. I was afraid. I thought they might do to one of us what they did to a seal. I wondered, does my face look more Jewish or more Arab to them? And if I am thinking about that, then how many others have avoided protesting alongside Palestinians for fear of getting caught up in violence? In the two decades since October 2000, the cycle of land grabs, protest, violence, and trauma has only worsened. I realized that in order to live in Israeli society again, I needed to talk about Asil, our friendship, and the painful silence surrounding his death. I contacted old friends with the idea of making a documentary. Almost none of my Palestinian friends had any interest in speaking on camera. One friend told me that, even if he trusted me with his story, his reputation could be damaged by being in an Israeli director's film. Someone would inevitably call him out on social media as a normalizer of the occupation, of state violence, of the expansion of settlements. I realized that Palestinians had their own silences. In my filmmaking and by picking up Arabic again, 
I am trying to find a voice to speak to Palestinians. Silence has fallen in my relationship with Tariq. We haven't spoken since the Seeds of Peace alumni event more than 15 years ago. He is now a business person in the United Arab Emirates. Although I've imagined talking to Tariq about a seal many times, I have yet to come up with a way to start that conversation. There is one person who breaks her silence in this story. Several years after we met for a walk in Jerusalem, Aliyah told me that she had asked me to wear my uniform that day so that she could see me as a soldier and finally let go of our friendship. Her plan did not have the intended effect. After that day in Jerusalem, we had years of off-again, on-again communication. But we are now closer than ever. We talk every week. She married a man, I married one too. In 2021, she managed to get a travel permit from Israeli authorities, and we went to Jerusalem with her children. Looking at them, I was overwhelmed with the joy of seeing a loved one's offspring, the ways in which they are similar to her, the ways in which they are new. But none of us has any idea when they'll be able to travel again. This is not the dream that Asil and I had shared. It is a violent reality in an unjust place with brief moments of grace. Some names have been changed in the writing of this article. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.